Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I am your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to what is going to be a great, great show. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters, Nine volumes total to date, all available at Amazon in paperback and ebook. So get out there and buy a few. It's Christmas time. And if you're an audiophile, you can get volumes one through eight at Audible, iTunes, and Amazon as well. So please partake of the good gift put before you. And. I may welcome my brother, Kev, today. I'm not going to introduce you as W.J. Sheehan. My, bro- <laughs> <laughs> my brother and co-host, K.J. Sheehan. Kev, how are you? I'm doing okay, Bill. As you know, I uh, talked to you yesterday. I'm fighting a cold. I'm, I'm winning so far, but folks, I'll <laughs> apologize. I sound a little bit like Rudolph when they put the mud <laughs> on his nose. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad a little more gun couldn't solve your problem. <laughs> I don't want to wear this on my nose. <laughs> yeah, that was ridiculous. That putty, mud nose. Putty, putty nose. <laughs> but I'll get through it. Yeah, no, it's cool. You sound a lot better. Yesterday morning, I was like, good grief, man. When did yeah, you it? it's a... It's a good one. Uh, really kicked my butt. Fortunately, it wasn't the dreaded COVID. Yeah. Um, but it felt that it felt that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was nasty. I could tell just talking to you yesterday that you were in a, a bad straight. Exactly. Uh, but anyways, listen. Before I get to anything else, or we get to anything else, we have a winner of our little Sasquatch Strange Gift Contest. Now, and I'm going to surprise you people because you remember I asked uh, which uh, area or state did you think that uh, had the most sightings according to my my own writings. And uh, the truth of the matter is, I don't know. (laughs) So... (laughs) We're I, all shocked, Bill. Yeah, We're all shocked. It tricked you. I tricked you with my uh, statement, but everybody wrote in and they had their opinion. Uh, and our winner, who is uh, Warren B, like Bill, Warren B, also known as Dozer Man, and uh, he's from the state of Michigan. And uh, I actually picked him 
Uh, because number one, he had all nine of my books. <laughs> and uh, he seemed pretty certain uh, of, uh, I think he picked Oregon, which a whole bunch of people picked. Uh, a few folks picked uh, Alberta. Uh, some people raised a needle on the ignorance scale, Kev, because I said, what state? And someone put down like six states. <laughs> <laughs> that was state without an S on the end. Hey, you can't blame them for trying. Yeah, not. <laughs> they may have been drinking a couple of Dogman beers. Uh, Could when, be. When they typed up their email. And listen, bro, speaking of Dogman beers, uh, you know we I was ribbing uh, our listener uh, from Saginaw, Michigan, who sent us the two cans of Dogman beer with the holes in the bottom. In other words, pre-drained. Well, post-drained. 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 Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, it seems that... Uh, uh, I got the best of them with my comments because I have a box here uh, from the same individual, unopened at this point in time, and uh, from Saginaw, Michigan, and it's marked non-hazardous liquid. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Now, now, so I, I would... hope you don't turn them into the authorities, Bill. He seemed to be worried about that. <laughs> so... I was thinking, you know, non-hazardous. I mean, I, I probably, you know, if you had a few of these dogmans and went driving, it might be a hazardous liquid. Uh, you know, you have a few of those dogmans and you drive the dozer, like dozer man or whatever <laughs> his name is. Uh, that's not going to be good. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to say his name, but uh, Warren yeah. B., uh, Warren, when you write back to me, let me know where you got the handle Dozer Man if, in fact, you uh, uh, are driving a D9 uh, cat or something. Uh, but anyways, remember, the rules are, in any of our contests, that you have to be listening to this podcast to know you won. And then you need to get back to us uh, with the details of where you live, your address and whatnot. And I'll send you out this little, uh, this neat little gift. So and I also it. have to ask, Bill, I mean, you don't have to own all nine of your books to win, right? <laughs> no, no. But I, I tell you, that did have a swaying vote. <laughs> and uh, I have to tell you, I was pulling for Oregon myself. So truth be told, yeah, you I know, wanted to hear you mispronounce it again, but you pronounced it correctly. So I don't know. Well, believe it or not, I had planned in my mind somewhere down the road uh, to go through my accounts to date uh, and uh, segregate them and uh, perhaps make up some volumes uh, based on, like, Midwest, Pacific Northwest, Southland, ah. uh, Canadian, uh, for people who may just be interested in those areas. So that was a thought I had had. Uh, I, may, I may get to that down the road, you know. That's very cool. I like that idea. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but the the reality is that uh, I never kept track of the individual states where all of the accounts come. And I started to think about it uh, in my mind, like, wow, you know, I was going through 
some of them that I, I recall in my head, and I'm like, wow, there is really a mixed bag. Uh, I would say personally, it would be, boy, it's tough. Personally, I want to say it's a, a, a between Washington, uh, Oregon, California, and uh, Canada. I'd say British Columbia. Yeah. Now, what is, is BC is not part of Canada? It is. It is. I'm saying uh, the westernmost province is British Columbia. Right. So BC and Alberta. For some reason, Manitoba is uh, ringing in my ears. I mean, there are definitely some hot spots. And by the way, uh, you know, they're hot spots based on the material that I have. Who knows yeah. if all of the material was in our hands, where where right. it would actually be? You know, it could be Maine. It could be New York. Uh, you know, I don't know because I don't have all the data, you know? Yep. yep. Certainly, Very cer- cool. Yeah, so that's it, man. Well, so congratulations you- to our contest winner. And what do they win, Bill? Well, I'm not going to tell you because, remember, this was like a mystery gift. Uh-huh. But uh, it's a very strange little thing, uh, and uh, that's all I'll say about it. It's uh, not a stack of rectangular paper with Benjamin Franklin's picture on them? That would not be given <laughs> Uh, to Dozer Man, that would that would be kept by me. <laughs> maybe maybe some pre-drained uh, uh, Dogman beer. Now that you have the real beer, yeah, I could send him some cans with nail holes in the bottom. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Warren. Now, if I have to tell you what it is, it's really an old Gumby found in the garage that the rubber is rotted off of. thanks warren turns out turns out warren i have the uh, matching worn out pokey (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) so kev what do we have today in our cryptids in the news and other of these segment well we're gonna shift gears today and we're gonna go out to the stanley hotel oh yeah in estes park colorado Yep, yep. As you know, Bill, I was out there in person a few weeks ago, Mm -hmm. and uh, the place is a creep fest. We love creep fests. (laughs) (laughs) You see any little kids riding around on a uh, Hot Wheel or something? (laughs) Big Wheel? (laughs) Yeah, Big Wheel. I couldn't think of the name of it. Uh, No, I didn't see any bloody sisters either, any bloody twins. Thank goodness. But it was creepy. Wow. So, yeah, I was out in Denver and then uh, took a ride up about an hour and a half outside of Denver is Estes Park. uh, And right near the entrance to the National Park is uh, a little town called Estes Park. And it is uh, up on the hillside is a white colonial looking building with a red roof on it. And it is uh, not the Red Roof Inn, but it is the Stanley Hotel. And it looks pretty cool from a distance. And, you know, as you get up to it, you start to realize, oh, yeah, this is that hotel that the book, The Shining by Stephen King, uh, it was inspired by him staying in uh, in the Stanley Hotel with his wife for one night and one night only. 
I, I can't wait to hear about this. Uh, how many people uh, stay for a night? Well, and there's, a, there's a good reason, a couple of good reasons why you stayed a night, but we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. So um, first we'll talk about the hotel and how it came about. So it was built in 1903 by a gentleman by the name of Freeland Oscar Stanley. And um, Freeland uh, was part of uh, a twin brother duo. So he and his brother lived in the eastern United States, and uh, uh, they were entrepreneurs and invented a few very cool things. So the first was uh, they invented a uh, dry plate uh, film system for... Uh, taking taking pictures for photography. So prior to their invention, you remember those old cameras, Bill, in the 1800s where you'd slide the big plate into them right. and a flash would go off, boom, you know. Right, right, and right, apparently right. it would take days to get those plates developed. Huh. And what they came up with was this dry plate system. They invented it where you could do it in minutes instead of days. So big, big innovation in photography at the time. And they made a ton of money on that, and they eventually sold it to a company called Eastman Kodak. Wow. Right? So you can see where that goes. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what Eastman then, Kodak was doing at the time. Yeah, I'm sure they were doing something with photography at the time. You know? Uh-huh, uh-huh. But I don't know. It's a good question. Yep, yep. And then these, these two twin brothers, they had another invention. So, Bill, you know, their last name is Stanley. Mm-hmm. And this is back in the late 1800s. What what do you think they invented? Well, it's no doubt they uh, created the Stanley Steamer automobile. Yeah, exactly. So I, I didn't put that together, even when I was standing there in the hotel, until in the hotel lobby uh, in one of the buildings, they have a Stanley Steamer parked there uh-huh. in the lobby. And I was like, oh, look at this. These, these guys, they, they're the same guys that did the Stanley Steamer. Yeah, what a contraption that thing was, man, and what an ingenious de- design. Exactly. And it turns out in, uh, in August 1899, uh, he and his wife drove this thing to the top of Mount Washington. Wow. And it's the first, uh, first motorist to reach the top of Mount Washington in a car. Uh, and they drove it back down? I guess so. Yeah, I mean, because the brakes... Uh- <laughs> Yeah, Who knows you know, with the sure brakes? They, <laughs> yeah, probably left it in low gear and rolled down the hill. You know, I don't know how those steam engines work. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's cool. And then later on that same year, they gave William McKinley uh, a tour of Washington, D.C. in the Stanley automi- automobile, marking the first time a sitting U.S. president had rode, ridden in a car. Huh. Isn't that pretty cool? Yeah, no, that's really neat. Uh, Trivia, you know what I mean? But interesting stuff, you know, like, wow. Yeah. I mean, who thinks of that the first time a president rode in a car? Right. And it's a steam-powered car, which is pretty uh, pretty interesting. So, But it's not all good news. So, okay. you know, these two brothers, twin brothers, are doing great, making tons of money, uh, inventing very cool things. You know, not only just making money, but inventing Two inventions that we know of that are pretty cool, you know, change change the face of history. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then Freeland, uh, he starts to get sick, and it turns out he has tuberculosis. Okay. Well, they think he has tuberculosis. You know, we never never know for sure. Um, and he starts to lose weight, and uh, just as he's dying, and he's a relatively young man. 
And um, he, you know, he goes to his doctor and he's like, and of course, back then there was no cure for tuberculosis. You know, they basically put you in a hospital with a bunch of other people that had tuberculosis and, you know, tried to do treatments for you. Some of them were brutal treatments from what I understand, um, but they couldn't really do anything. Right. So his doctor said, well, you know, you have a lot of money. Uh, the only thing I could recommend is that you move out west uh, to this place called Denver, Colorado, where they have uh, fresh and dry air and a lot of sunlight. And uh, we have heard of that being, uh, you know, a, a good treatment for tuberculosis. Huh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's interesting. So he moves out there. And um, it turns out, though, that that's not a great time to be in Denver if you're looking for clean air because they're doing so much mining oh, boy. at that time. So uh-huh. the air is very polluted and stuff like that. And he actually t- takes a turn for the worse. And um, he's down like less than 100 pounds and basically dying. And he goes to see the doctor with his wife out there in Denver. And the doctor tells him, hey, listen, uh, all I can say is, uh, you know, you, there's nothing we can do for you. I have a hunting cabin up in Estes Park. Up in the mountains here, it's a beautiful cabin. I'll give you the keys. I think you should live out your last days up there. Um, you know, basically, I think you have about two months to live. Wow. So, yeah, really bad news. So him and his wife go up there, and they, they, they hang out in the cabin, and all of a sudden he starts feeling much, much, much better. Um, so the mountain air up there, which is even higher than Denver, is making him feel really good. And the nice clean air is making him feel really good. So, you know, if I cut to the chase, he lives another 40 years. Wow. After being told, yeah, yeah, he died at age of 91 in Boston of a heart attack. So, you know, basically that air up there in Estes Park cured him, but he really couldn't leave. And he missed all of his friends and his family. So they built this hotel, which originally ended up being just like a retreat where people could come and visit in 1903, Mm -hmm. you know, and a pretty, pretty interesting place. And it was a place like his friends, of course, being an inventor like he was, were like the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, you know, J.P. Morgan, folks like that, you know, the, the richest of the rich would come out there and stay with him. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So it had like this beautiful uh, music building, you know, like a concert hall that I went in where they would have performances in there, still have performances today. But, you know, these folks would come out and it would be a big journey for them and they would entertain them and and put them up in this, you know, pretty lavish hotel, right? Incredible. And, And yeah, and it turns out that when the hotel opened, it was said to be one of the few in the world that was powered entirely by electricity back then in 1903. Yeah, that was a um, big deal. Big deal, yeah. So, but, but back then, uh, there was still an, a lack of uh, reliable electricity uh, in that area of the country. So they also installed an auxiliary gas lighting system. In June 1911. So the place opened in 1903, and in 1911, they put in uh, a gas system for auxiliary lighting. Wow. Right? You know, I I heard a a while back, uh, you know, Edison, of course, uh, Edison, 
again being uh, hobnobbing with the ultra-rich, had wired certain mansions up on the Gold Coast over here and around New England uh, for his rich friends with electricity before anybody else had it. Yeah. Yeah, he had put lighting in and uh, uh, generating systems. And, uh, I mean, some of these guys played with millions like we play with a buck. You know, they had rail lines run over by their houses to bring coal in to power things. I mean, the stuff that your ordinary person couldn't even dream of, you know? Yeah, no doubt about it. And that was back when Edison, he was kind of campaigning um, to to uh, for I, I may get this mixed up because of my head cold, but he was, I think, ace uh, for alternative current electricity. And then he was fighting with uh, whoever it was. I can't think of the other well, inventor. Actually, Actually, it was Edison uh, had DC current. Oh, and good. Tes- Thank you. Te- Tesla came up with what we use today, uh, alternating current, which is like in everything. I mean, you open up your refrigerator, it's AC. Right, right. You but know- they were fighting with one another to have the world adopt their system. That's right. Kind of like the old Sony Betamax versus VHS you know, recorders. They were both good. <laughs> Yeah, they were both good, but they had whoever got the most deployed first would probably win. Right. You know, and of course they're very different from one another, but they they both could be made to work. Right. And uh, today and today we use neither. Now we use AC now. No, I mean uh, Betamax and VHS. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> they got surpassed. But so so they, they put this gas system into uh, the hotel in 1911. And I know you're probably thinking, where uh, where is this going? Um, but they put this in. And uh, that next day, when they're charging the system, uh, they have an explosion in a room right over, like, the, the main lobby of the hotel, which I stood in. And the room that's over the main lobby is room 217, which, remember that number, it's going to come back in a few minutes. Uh-huh. But this this room explodes like, where someone goes up there to light a lamp or something like that, and there had been a gas leak, boom, basically blows the whole room down into the, the lobby of the hotel and blows out the front of the building where there's this balcony on room 217 that overlooks the valley and the front entrance of the hotel. Um, and a lot of people get hurt in this, in this explosion, as you can imagine. About 20 people get very seriously hurt. Wow. Right. So they make repairs and stuff like that. They get it fixed. They figure out what happened. And then shortly thereafter, this is where the, the, uh, the haunting begins in the hotel, right? You have this tragic accident centered around this room 217. And then you have this woman that's there, and I don't have her name, but she was one of uh, the housekeepers on staff since oh. since the hotel opened and just a diligent worker. And she comes into work uh, the morning, a few days after the big explosion, and she's cleaning and cleaning. They're getting the repairs done to room 217. He was working very quickly, of course, and having workers work very quickly because he had guests coming. And, you know, they're coming all the way across the country. He couldn't not have them. He couldn't not have the place functional when they made those plans to come over. So they're working around the clock. She shows up another day and she's actually cleaning room 217 to get it ready. 
And uh, um, she punches in that morning on the clock, punches out on the time clock, you know, at five o'clock or six o'clock and goes home. And then the next day, uh, one of her relatives comes out to the hotel to let them know that, unfortunately, this woman passed away two days ago at her home in Estes Park. So if you're following along closely, two days ago would make it impossible for her to come to work the prior day. I work all day. Yeah. So they say, um, no, it sounded like you said two days ago, but I assume you mean last night. And the relative's like, no, no, two days ago. She was pronounced dead at 7 o'clock in the evening at her home by the doctor. And they're like, well, she was here yesterday. We all saw her. And she punched in and out on the time clock, too. Wow. Yeah. So this woman apparently, like, she came back as, like, a, a ghost or spirit that everyone could see and interact with. And did her work the following day. So she's rumored to come back from time to time in the hotel as well. Wow, that is creepy. Yeah. So now let's fast forward. That's 1911. Now we go to 1974. And the hotel is not doing well back then in 1974. You know, it's in an era of uh, just a tough time to make money. Uh, in any way, shape, and form. So it's gotten into a state of disrepair. It's still open as a hotel, but it's not doing well at all. It's been foreclosed on a couple of times and just kind of a bit of a shambles. And then uh, Stephen King, the famous writer, and his wife are going, they want to go up through Estes Park and further into the mountains to stay up, you know, in the more desolate part of the mountains. Mm-hmm. And they're coming up from Denver, and there's a terrible snowstorm. I think it was in the month of October, like the end of October. And there's a terrible snowstorm. They can't go any further. The gates to the park entrance are closed. And uh, his wife says to him, says to Stephen King, like, listen, we just got to find a place to stay. Like, you know, we can't go on any further. I don't want to drive all the way back to Denver tonight. It's late at night. So they see this signs for this hotel up on the hillside and they go up there. So now it's the evening, Bill, right? I think it's pictured around eight o'clock at night, dark out. They go up there. It's snowing like crazy and they check in. And uh, there's not many people around the hotel at all, just a couple of people. And they tell them that the hotel actually closes for the season the following day. Wow. So they said most of the staff, and in in fact, almost all of the staff will be gone this evening. But you're welcome to stay, and we don't want to turn you away, you know, in this terrible snowstorm. Of course. Right? Yeah, it's just dangerous. Yeah. So... They let them check in, and guess what room they put them in? 217. 217. So they go up into 217, you know, probably the most haunted and ill-fated room in the hotel. All the rooms are empty. They're the only guests there. Um, Stephen King goes downstairs to the bar as his wife is, you know, resting in bed. And uh, there's one man in the hotel working there. And he's sitting at the bar as well. And uh, uh, Stephen King puts some money on the bar and says, you know, will this buy me a drink? And a man says, well, I work here. I've already counted up all of the money for the year. 
So I'm happy to give you a glass of my bourbon, but you can keep your money. So they end up sitting and having a few drinks of bourbon together. Um, the man tells, tells Stephen King that he's the only one in the hotel and then goes back. Uh, Stephen King has a couple of drinks, goes back to his room, you know, closes up the door with his wife and has a terrible nightmare. Basically, they had a small son at the time who was not with them, but Stephen King envisioned that uh, one of these fire hoses, if you remember in the old building spill, they would have these fire hoses that were coiled up on the wall prior to sprinkler systems, and there'd be a valve next to them that you could turn on, in theory, to fight a fire. Right, right. So he has this dream and this terrible vision that um, this fire hose outside of his door came to life and that his son was out in the hallway kind of playing with it and this thing like uh, attacks his son like a snake. Holy smoke. Yeah, and he wakes up screaming, you know, in a cold sweat and uh, then walks out on this balcony in the snow outside of room 217 and looks out at the valley and basically he's like, I think I know um, what story I'm going to write. Wow. And it's going to be about this creep fest, creep fest hotel with no one in it in a snowstorm. And that became The Shining. Interesting. And you know what? Just vi- envision yourself in the same scenario. You're in this blizzard. You're in this gigantic old building. Uh, there's like nobody in it. And you go up to a room. There's nobody in the halls. No help around. I mean, that in itself would be creepy. Dude, I, I, I don't know if I ever told you, but I stayed in a hotel probably 30 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, out in a place called French Lick, Indiana. And people, our listeners, some of them in Indiana are going to know the French Lick Resort. But when I stayed there, it wasn't a resort. And it was this many-story high white building um, and like no one in it back then. I, I hear now it's like a gambling casino. But it wasn't back then. But it was famous back in uh, during Prohibition, mm-hmm. where Al Capone and the gang used to come down and stay at this place, and they would yeah. drink. And so it was like a giant speakeasy that was uh, hidden from the eyes of the federal government in, uh-huh, by whatever uh-huh. means. But I used to stay there on a regular basis because I used to do business out there. And it was so creepy, I can tell you, where like I'd pull up in the parking lot at night and I'd look at the side of this like 10 or 12 story building and there would be one light on. And it was like <laughs> the light in my room that I left on during the day. <laughs> so I, I, can, I can imagine what Stephen King and his wife felt like uh, that night. So they, they checked out the next day. And uh, um, he wrote the book, The Shine, which is one of his most successful books. And uh, it kind of put the Stanley Hotel on the map again in the 1970s. And some people say that that horror story saved um, the Stanley Hotel from, you know, demolition and, uh, you know, just going away. Yeah, it worked. it, It worked out well for them. Because uh, a lot of people would just go there to this day just to stay there. Well, you that's know. what they say. The uh, room 217 
is uh, has the highest level of reservations of any other room, Bill. So Incredible. a lot of folks like to get creeped out. And when I was there talking to the uh, uh, tour guide, she said that it's booked. The room 217 is booked out for like the next eight Halloweens. So everybody books it out in advance to stay there on uh, All Hallows Eve. Wow, that's crazy. And, you Super know, just, creepy, right? just for the folks listening and uh, those newcomers to our show, our podcast is Bigfoot Terror in the Woods, Sightings and Encounters, of course. But uh, in our uh, Cryptids and Other Oddities segments, uh, Kevin does his due diligence to bring out uh, anything strange. It could be a Bigfoot account. It could be a Loch Ness Monster. And today it was this... Uh, Excellent uh, exegesis on the uh, Stanleys and the uh, Stanley Hotel and bringing Stephen King in as well. That kept, that was an excellent, excellent. Yeah, it's cool. And, and I'll, I'll add one more point, Bill, that, um, you know, for those of you out there, you may say, like I did, but that's not where they filmed The Shining. And that is correct. They filmed The Shining at another place called the Timberline Lodge, which I have also been to. Um, which is up on Mount Hood, on the slopes of Mount Hood in Bill's favorite state, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And uh, that place is also super creepy because it's kind of above the tree line on Mount Hood, you know, uh-huh. literally in the middle of nowhere. But that's where they filmed it. But he got the inspiration for it um, in uh, the Stanley Hotel. And then someone told me that there was a TV series, a brief TV series, mini series or something like that called The Shining, which I have to find, and that was actually filmed at the Stanley Hotel. So, <laughs> we'll see. What a, what a tangled web! But I could exactly. see how I could see how Stephen uh, drew on his experience of the vacant giant building, the single uh, bartender that uh, serves him during the movie, and it has these creepy macabre conversations with him about, you know, kind of pushing him to the edge. You remember them? Oh, yeah. He'd be like, well, if if I was you, you know, he was always like uh, feeding him to to do evil. You know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. What a freaking creep fest. (laughs) Kev, Kev, that was excellent. And uh, I don't know about anybody else. I really enjoyed uh, hearing about uh, the historicity of that hotel and, and how things came about, and that's definitely uh, a creep fest, and certainly an other oddity. <laughs> yeah, it was a good. It was a good field trip too. It's a beautiful part of the country too. If you ever get a chance to go out there, it's worth seeing. Especially if you're in Denver, it's a pretty easy drive up into the mountains, and uh, uh, just a beautiful area. Yeah, and pretty uh, a pretty telling tale too about Stanley initially. Uh, being given a death sentence, and when he went up there to that crisp, clean air and uh, that that uh, altitude and whatnot, he wound up living 40 more years. Yeah, amazing, right? It is amazing. And let me get to this account I have here. This is, this is really incredible. We were talking about uh, this area some time ago, if not just briefly, but this sighting was shared with me by a, a guy named Ned Etheridge from Washington State. Uh, Ned was actually hunting near Saint, uh, Mount St. Helens when it blew. 
And this is what he both experienced and saw, and you're not going to believe this. It was on Saturday, May 17th, 1980, that I had hiked in and made camp with St. Helens looming in the distance. I knew at the time, as did many others, that the volcano had been seemingly gaining momentum as far as activity goes. But in my own mind, I wasn't concerned, believing that nothing would occur. That was all about to change in a dramatic fashion. It was about 8.30, now on Sunday morning, and I was sitting by my fire, frying some spam over the flames, when suddenly the ground rumbled and shook. As I turned my head, the entire side of Mount St. Helens blew out. Can you imagine, folks? Sending a gigantic plume of ash out from its side. The ash cloud looking like a fire extinguisher when you pulled the trigger. I was many miles away from the mount at the time. And yet I could tell that this cloud of ash would engulf me in a matter of minutes. So I literally left everything where it was and started to move quickly. It was only a short time later that I felt like hell had consumed me. I was under a dense black cloud with thunder rumbling around me as the ground continued to shake beneath my feet. Can you imagine, folks, this this guy out there by himself solo hunting and being there when this all takes place? My breathing became labored as the ash cloud and the ash now entered my lungs, and it began to burn my eyes to the point it was nearly blinding me. There was a moment when the thought had entered into my mind that this would be my last day on earth and that I would never be found. That's how horrific an experience this was. I was all alone and being consumed with this or by this volcano from hell. I don't recall exactly how much time had passed. For me, it seemed like an eternity. Feeling like I would would and could drop in my tracks at any minute from a heart attack or suffocation. It was a short while later that the wind began to move this dark cloud away that had been looming over my head blocking out the light of day and nearly choking me to death. As this cloud began to dissipate, I remember bending over at the waist with my hands on my knees, breathing deliberately in a heavy manner to expel the ash that was within me. I could actually feel the particles scratching my eyes and my throat. Eventually, I stood upright, trying to regain my composure by telling myself that everything was going to be all right, when I saw two large figures moving down a slope to my right-hand side. They were coming from the direction of St. Helens. At first glance, as these two figures were moving through the trees descending this hillside, 
I believe that I was looking at two hunters in ghillie suits, covered in gray ash, hustling for their lives to get away from the devastation. As I continued to watch them in the hope of signaling to them when they crossed my path up ahead, I quickly realized that the speed which they were moving at, as well as the way they were moving, did not look normal to me. As they broke out of the trees, walking through and over the trail that I was following, they were momentarily maybe just 40 yards ahead of me, and I shouted, Yo! Both of these things, which I now knew were Bigfoot, turned in unison in response to my call, looking directly at me. And without so much as missing a step, they turned away and kept walking off into the woods. When they broke out of the trees, I saw for the first time the actual size of the creatures. (coughs) Excuse me. There was no question about what I was looking at. They were enormous. I would estimate between eight and nine feet tall and maybe a thousand pounds apiece. Turning their heads towards me, their black eyes stood out like beads within the outline of their ash-covered bodies. They looked like two animals that had been dipped in gray paint, being completely covered in fur which was clumped together by the ash. They had crossed an area of perhaps 20 yards in only a handful of steps and moved quickly out of my sight. Although I had experienced the very depths of hell that day, it appeared that these Bigfoot experienced the same thing for themselves and wanted no part of it either. I made it out that day and lived to tell both their their tale and mine. What do you think of that, Kev? Wow. I can't imagine being anywhere close to Mount St. Helens when it when it blew. Well, he said he was miles away. Oh, you had to be miles away. Otherwise, all the trees would have blown down on you. But, uh, I mean, even miles away, you know? I mean, geez, like many years later, when I was living in Spokane, which was like the late 90s, um, we would drive to Seattle, and you still see the ash, you know, now kind of frozen, so to speak, along the side of the road on the way to uh, way to Seattle. I mean, yeah, you know, when I wrote down this account and his description of the uh, the black eyes of the Bigfoot, like just being highlighted or punching out of their heads because of the completely gray coloration of the hairy ash covered bodies. You know what came to my mind? Remember the photographs of the people walking down the streets in Manhattan? Oh, they, yeah. Twin Towers toppled? Yeah. And they were covered in that ash. And all you saw yeah. was a little bit of their eyes, and everybody was gray, and the stuff and debris and soot and everything else was everywhere. Yeah. Uh, well. I, but can you imagine this poor slob? I mean, there's no way to run. Uh, like the old song says, nowhere to run and nowhere to hide, you know? Uh, yeah. What a... F- and then he sees these two creatures. <coughs> Let's face it. All of the wildlife 
was every bit a part of this uh, devastation as any any man was, as this guy was, uh, in the area, you know? Yeah. Incredible. And, you know, there are people who say today, and I have other accounts around the St. Helens area in that vicinity, uh, Bigfoot is still there. Hmm. So people uh, people were encountering them then. He encountered them that day. And people are still encountering them there now. So, you know, nature takes over, even after a fire or, in this case, a volcanic eruption. Uh, nature uh, has a way of rebuilding. You know, the trees grow, the bushes take shape again, animals come back in, birds, you know. It really is an incredible thing. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Yeah, that, yes. that's... That's some, it's something else. I mean, you know, I I can't imagine, yet I can imagine the guy standing there and seeing and thinking it's hunters in ghillie suits, right, covered in ash, and then all of a sudden being like, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah. This, and is, that's, uh, this is what I thought wasn't possible to see, but it's right here in front of me. That's right. And that's the thing about sightings and encounters that uh, – a person who hasn't had for themselves an experience, whether it's Bigfoot, a UFO, a ghost, uh, whatever it may be, when you're, and I can speak firsthand from experience, when these things happen to you, you are not yourself. So it's easy to stand back and say, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Why don't you do this? It doesn't happen that way. Uh, my experience is, is, is that you're stunned. Sure. Your, your mind is, not, is, is so in the moment about trying to organize uh, what it is that's going on. Is this real? You know, you think you're in a dream, uh, and yet it is real. And by the time you're done with all of that processing and, and trying to figure out uh, what's going on in your mind— it's over. It's long over. Yeah, 100%. Crazy. And that's, that's why even, as I told you, that day I had the UFO uh, sighting at Shinnecock, which is in my new book, uh, which will be coming out soon. I had a camera in my glove compartment, and I knew it, and I didn't go get it. Yeah. How? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I had a camera, and I knew it, and I didn't go get it. It was right next to me. All I had to do was open the driver's door, reach into the glove box, and grab it, and I didn't do it. Oh, you probably would have taken shaking, shaky pictures anyway, Bill. <laughs> and that was my Canon Sure Shot, my best camera. Well, that was Sure Shot. <laughs> Maybe it wouldn't have been shaky. <laughs> Oh, man. So that's it, man. That was a great account. And uh, following that great Stanley Hotel uh, report, uh, I would say we hit a home run, Kev. Two creepy tales from the mountains. Yeah, no doubt about it, you know. Yeah, and I made it through so far without coughing a bunch, although I do sound like Rudolph. (laughs) (laughs) Well, take, take (laughs) take the mud off your nose. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, we're going to go to uh, our listener mail, Bill, and we have some good listener mail today. Uh, the first one, one of my favorite letters of the week, comes in from Karen. Karen doesn't say where she is, but the subject is paper bag Halloween costume. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she says, I feel your pain, Kevin. My mother insists she would never buy a paper bag costume, but I remember. <laughs> and by the way, folks, you know, uh, you know, may my mother rest in peace, but she would probably deny that she bought me a paper bag costume <laughs> as well. So Karen goes on to say, I wore a terrible paper bag costume when I was little as well. I was so embarrassed, too. Mine was a piglet. (laughs) (laughs) Karen says, I had to run to keep up with the older guys, uh, with with, with my older brothers, and the bag was just tearing all apart when we were done collecting candy. You guys always have me laughing, so enjoy. I so much enjoy the podcast. Thanks, Karen. Uh, I can't. By help the way, myself. Karen, mine was torn apart by the end of the day. You can't move much in a paper bag, you know. <laughs> and especially if it starts to drizzle or something on Halloween. Oh my goodness! Like- Thankfully, it wasn't drizzling. Could you imagine? <laughs> What's worse than wearing a paper bag? Wearing a wet paper bag. Jeez. Yeah. Oh, a piglet of all. I can picture this kid dressed as a piglet trying to keep up with the the other bigger kids, you know, and stuff. <laughs> no, and Karen, I'm sure I'm sure you can appreciate this. I can't remember a lot of stuff vividly from being a little kid, you know, like five or six years old. But I remember that vividly. Like I could paint a picture of this stupid bird <laughs> paper bag costume. It's hysterical. By the way. I want to be a dentist. <laughs> Herbie. <laughs> a dentist. It's <laughs> oh, uh, uh, funny. All right. Our next letter comes in from Chris. And Chris uh. also doesn't say where he's from. And he says, uh, hello, guys. I'm a big fan of your podcasts and books. I listen to you every morning on the way to work. And you always get me thinking. I'd like to point out that I'm a believer and not ashamed to admit it, but I'd like to ask you a question. Why have we not seen a dead Bigfoot carcass? Are they so elusive and intelligent that they even hide their dead? I look forward with excitement and interest as to what your answer is to this question. Keep up the good work, and I can't wait to listen to your next episode. So what do you think, Bill? Where where are these dead carcasses of Bigfoot? Well, there's two answers to that question that I stand on. Uh, yep. Number one, I have always believed that they bury their dead, of course, if they die near them, right? I mean, yep. if, if you're sickly and you die, you die off, I believe they just dig a trench or whatever, uh, similar to a human being, cover them over back in the woods, and you're never going to find them. Unless somebody builds a shopping center in the middle of freaking uh, the wilderness, you know, and we know that's not going to happen. But to answer the second part of the question, why haven't we found a body? Many bodies have been found. And if I've uncovered uh, a half a dozen of them in just the uh, encounters that I have, how many more have happened? I mean, 
I had the account of the uh, the highway uh, up uh, up here in the northeast where uh, uh, I want to say the Wilfredo and Helena. Uh, Gun- I think their last name was Gonzalez. The two Mex the Mexican couple. They ran across that uh, roadkill on the side of the road that the truck oh, had yeah. hit. Remember that yeah, one? Yeah, I remember. I remember that one. Yeah. Uh, then in the account of the uh, fifth bullet, uh, which was similar, we remember talking uh, that it was similar to the layout of the Marble Mountain film, where the guy oh, yeah. first first sighted the uh, Bigfoot up on the ridge line, and it came down at him. And remember, that thing was coming like a freight train, and he fired five rounds at it with a freaking M one was it an M1 or an M16 I forget he had a military uh rifle and it was the fifth bullet that finally took this thing down and he left it there uh right where it lied uh right where it lay and got on out of there just didn't want anything else to do with it you know he wasn't going to wait for I think he said the family members to come by and take revenge or whatever he just left it uh there's another count I know of uh, down in the Southland that we'll get to one of these days on the uh, podcast. And uh, one more that I'm aware of that was hit by a car. Uh, mm. So there are bodies being found. Now, what happens to these things is anybody's guess. Uh, if you leave it out there after it was shot, well, that's one thing. Uh we had the old account from the uh, the 90s when that fella Bugs called up Art Bell on Coast to Coast and uh, told the tale of uh, him and his buddies out shining at night, which is like putting flashlights or searchlights on animals and shooting them basically illegally. And they shot a Bigfoot and consequently shot another Bigfoot. And he had told Art at the time that he knows where they buried the bodies. Mm. Uh, but he couldn't he couldn't come to grips with the fact that he wouldn't or possibly could be brought up on murder charges. Mm. Uh, that was a great show with Art Bell. Uh, a lot of you out there know what I'm talking about. Uh, the fella called in and just went by the name of Bugs. Hmm. So, so, yeah, they're being found, but we don't know... Uh, we don't know the half of what's going on with them, so... Sure. That's pretty much it, Kevin. All right, cool. Our last letter, Bill, we're going to go to our contest winner that you mentioned, Warren, and read his read his letter. Okay. So he writes in, hello, Bill and Kevin. I'm saying that the area where most of your reports are from is Oregon. I haven't counted, but Oregon seems to dominate most of the podcast episodes. I'm from mid-Michigan, and I drive a truck across the state. On I-75 north of Grayling, there are three or four spots where someone has painted white, large footprints across the highway. On my trip across to Wisconsin, I've I've counted seven different Sasquatch statues or paintings. I look forward to your upcoming shows. Thank you for doing them. Yeah, incredible, you know. And it's true, Warren. Like, I travel a lot, and uh, I see all the time now, you know— if if at least like a cutout silhouette uh, out of uh, uh, steel, you know, like in someone's backyard along a farm of a Sasquatch, you know, or 
billboards or the many, many, many museums, you know, one of which I reported on up in Maine that was spectacular yeah, this yeah. summer that I went to. So, yeah, you know, they, they, a lot of, lot of stuff is out there, more and more every day. Pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. And, uh, you know, as uh, we come to the end of this podcast, you know, Kev, you know, I don't think our audience know. Uh, knows well. How would they? But our podcast reaches uh, Japan, Australia, Europe, South and Central America. I mean, we are just like looping around the planet. And I really like to hear and encourage uh, more of our distant listeners to chime in with us as to what is going on in your neighborhood. Uh, it may not necessarily be a Bigfoot, uh, maybe an Orang Pendek, uh, some type of mysterious happening, uh, but we'd like to hear from more of you. We know you're listening, and we'd like to hear from more of you, so please. Maybe even a creepy hotel or two. Yeah, yeah, maybe even a creepy <laughs> hotel. <laughs> so, uh yeah, it's incredible, Kev. Uh, great show today. Great show today. All right. Good stuff, Bill. Why don't you close it up as my voice is fading? Yeah. And remember, folks, if you happen to be walking around in the woods this weekend or any day, searching for Bigfoot or not, you best remember one thing. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight. <laughs>